Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast. Episode 18, Volatility in Game Design, recorded at Gen Con 2012 by Jason Morningstar, presented by Jason Morningstar and James Ernest. I'm very tired, so I'm just going to post the notes for this lecture and leave. <laughs> Good morning, everyone. You've done your introduction? Uh, no, I haven't. Begin. All right. <laughs> so you've taken the stentorian tone of the professor. Uh, I am uh, Jason Morningstar. I'm one of the co-founders of Bully Pulpit Games. We design uh, tabletop role-playing games. Uh, and uh, that's the, the space that I operate in. But uh, I'm conversant in board games and card games as well, of course. I'm James Ernest, and I am also conversant in board and card games. I must talk like this, or I will fall asleep. Uh, I'm best known as the president of Cheap Ass Games. I've designed about 150 published tabletop games and a few computer games that I recently stripped off my resume because I'm sick of that business. Um, and uh, this lecture idea is sort of a game design 200 class. It's very much about the nuts and bolts of, of uh, game mechanics, how to use randomness correctly in game designs, how to use it incorrectly, and uh, how luck and chaos uh, work to make games more appealing to a broader number of people. So, so hopefully you're in the right place. Hopefully you're in the right place. You are free to walk out at any time. I, I don't know who heard me relay this earlier, but I, one of my game design sessions at Origins, somebody had to come and apologize to me later for walking out in the middle because I had given him a piece of advice so good that he had to go work on his game right now. <laughs> okay, no problem. So if you leave early, I'll assume that's why. <laughs> that's, that's, my, that's my fallback now from now on. Um, all right, so is that the right topic? Does yeah. that sound good to everyone? Game designers tend to come to the hobby through two vectors, um, through, through the profession, to the profession of game design through two vectors. One of them is through arts and entertainment, and one of them is through math. And if you have a math background and you think entirely with your math brain, you tend to make games that are fairly mechanical, dry, um, uh, difficult, and, and non-random. And you tend to fear randomness uh, and use it poorly. And we're going to talk about how to sort of get out of that rut. From the arts and storytelling side, you tend to not have much of a grasp at all of how mechanics ought to work, and so we'll probably try to address that a little bit too, and just talk about basic game mechanics and how to how to use them correctly. But this lecture topic originated when I was doing work on um, a game called Lords of Vegas, which has a lot of dice rolling in it, um, but it's not the kind of dice rolling that really ruins the game for any individual player. And I tried to break down randomness in games into categories that made sense to me. And I came up with three categories. Um, and I don't remember what they are, of course, so I'm going to look at my notes. Um, the first category is called cosmetic randomness, and it has no bearing on the game at all. Um, it's rare that you find this in board games, but you can see it more in computer games where colors change or enemies look different but behave the same way. Um, it, it is... It is kind of the, the, the non-issue kind of randomness. Um, 
Cosmetic randomness in poker is four suits that are not not distinct. A flush and hearts is different from a flush and clubs, but not really. They're the same. They behave the same way. They just look different. Um, biased randomness is the kind that is most often used by people who don't get it, and that's randomness, uh, random events which favor a particular player. So if we're going to each roll a six-sided die and that's our score, that's biased because the dice decide which one of us wins. Um, like I said, that's very common. It's what people usually go to when they start designing games because they don't really have a familiarity with how to use it. Um, and the third one is called fair randomness um, because although it does randomize the game and have a significant impact on the mechanics and the outcome, it doesn't specifically favor an individual player. Instead, it just changes the setup in a way that you have to react to um, and play the game with good strategy. The example... Uh, of, of, of fair randomness that I like to use is uh, goes like this. I hate chess. And the reason that I hate chess is that these days someone who has memorized a lot of opening moves will beat someone who's just good at chess. And so that takes the play out of the game and makes it all about memorization. And when you just memorize how to play a game, it's not play anymore, it's work. Um, I'm paraphrasing myself, but also Bobby Fischer. He popularized, or tried to popularize, a version of chess called Chess 960. <coughs> chess 960 is named after the 960 ways that you can randomly set up a chessboard. It's the same on both sides, but by randomly arranging the pieces, you take away all the memorized opening moves and just play chess for crying out loud. Um, of course, I think they ought to call it Chess 959 because who wants to play Arrangement 1 again? But <laughs> um, That is fair randomness. It, it randomizes the setup in a way that challenges you to, to play the game instead of just coming to it with skill that you already have. <laughs> I, I know, I know. I'm like, I'm going to just read my notes and he's going to sit here and be like, oh, that's it. yeah, right. So I'm trying to... How do you feel about that? You're trying to... to right, okay. No, I, I, of course I, I agree with that. I think it's interesting, and of course I filter that through the, the lens of role-playing games where uh, there are... Uh, issues of fairness may not be as relevant uh, issues of skill. Um, I guess system mastery is skill, so, so there are games where uh, that becomes important. Uh, but you should talk more, and uh, I'll, I'll have more to say. Uh, yeah, I'll talk for a while, and we'll <laughs> do questions and, and that. I swear I'm so tired on Sunday morning. Um, my friend Dave Howell does a lot of game design lectures, and he talks about why you add chaos to a game. Primarily it is to, in his, from his view anyway, to broaden the range of potential opponents. Uh, when a game is entirely strategy-based or skill-based, uh, like chess, it's difficult to find an opponent who's at your level and have a challenging game. You will find someone who can easily crush you or someone you can easily crush, but uh, to have, you know, sort of what feels like a fair game and both players having an equal chance to win, you, you, you have a really narrow band of, of players you can play against. At the other end of the spectrum, a game that's entirely luck is you, you can play with anyone. Uh, they roll a higher number game, you can, you know, everyone has the same chance. And that's why a game like Candyland is excellent for families because the kids have an equal chance to win that the parents do. But I think most gamers want to find something in the middle, that is, there's enough chaos that they feel like they can always come back from a bad situation, but also enough strategy so that they feel like when they have one that they had something to do with it. 
Um, that, is, that is the spectrum along which we distribute all of our games. Um, it's interesting, though, that while Games Magazine likes to rate games on a single axis from luck to skill, the fact is that those are actually two different variables that you can have in high and low proportion. So a game like Tic-Tac-Toe has very little skill and no luck. A game like Poker has a lot of luck or chaos and also a lot of skill. And chess is lots of skill and no luck, and you can imagine filling in the rest of that grid. But um, there's actually a third axis to that grid, which I call, I've been calling work, although I kind of like calling it play instead. Um, distinguishing um, skill as being something that you bring to the game from previous experience, or if, it's, if the game is put the ball in the basket, then you're skilled at it because you're tall, whatever you bring to the game is different from play, which is what you do in the game to make your situation better. Play is the strategic decisions that you make in the course of the game, which you can't just look at, look at a table and look up and know. You have to do that work in the middle of the game. Some games with a lot of work are no fun for me because they are so much work, and you probably played games with lots of downtime where every player feels like he needs to do a lot of computations on his turn in order to play the game correctly. Um, Dave Howell talks about what the medium-sized solution space, which is the bane of many strategy games, that the solution space is not so small that you can easily see the right move, and it's not so large that you can say, oh, forget it, I'll just do something. It's medium-sized, and it's such that you feel like you kind of ought to solve it, even if it takes you five minutes on every turn. That's, you want to stay away from that. Um, I've rambled off. But, but, but that's luck, skill, and, and, and work. That's sort of three axes along which you can measure your game and say how much of this is in my game and how much do my players really want in it. I have to unlock this every time I, I look at it. So I want to give you some examples of biased randomness and fair randomness so we can talk a little bit more about it. Biased randomness is a roll of a dice. It's a spin of a slot machine. It is a completely random event that favors one player and not another. Um, a roll of the dice in Settlers of Catan is going to be biased because it's going to give resources to one player and not to another. Um, a movement roll in Monopoly is going to land <coughs> you on a particular space, and that's going to favor one player over another. Um, and all roles where you know you get something good or you get or you get nothing are are biased randomness. Can I ask a question about yeah. that? Yeah. So, uh, are you using bias in that case in a pejorative way? Do you think that that's? Uh, the I yeah, I think that's sort of the intent of that term. And um, there's 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 something called the gambler's fallacy, which is the belief that over time a lot of those random events will even out. And so, in Settlers of Catan, you can try to make the argument that although the resources are distributed based on the roll of dice, that eventually those rolls will even out, and so everyone will get their fair share. And since players share in that fallacy, everyone is happy, right? Um, but it's not true. The average tends towards a, a single number, but the distribution just gets wider and wider over time. Um, so if you are at the beginning of Settlers of Catan and a little bit behind in resources, you are much worse off than you think. You are much further behind than you think in terms of the resource distribution. There are ways to compensate. The game provides some mechanics for compensating, attacking the leader, and so forth. But the, the plain mechanism of distributing resources based on a random roll does not even out over time. 
With the structure of settlers, even using a dice step doesn't really solve the problem because it's a geometrically expanding resource curve. So if you get your good rolls early, it is better than if you get your good rolls late. How many of you didn't follow that at all? Okay, good. This is the right room. <laughs> when, when this uh, seminar is over, do you have any references that we could go to later on to remind us of your talk? Um, I should post these notes online. Um, I haven't yet, but I, I think what you should do is email me and bug me to do it because I have some game design articles at cheapass.com um, and I'm working on a textbook this fall for a game design class, so I, that material needs to be made. So, um, As far as other game design resources, there's not a lot of good books on board game design. Um, the Cobalt Game, board game, what is it called? The Cobalt Guide to Board Game Design? What's it called? Yeah, cool. yeah, yeah. Um, that's got uh, a lot of good articles about design and production and theory in it, so you should definitely check that out. I highly recommend the three that are by me. There we go, a second. Um, there is, there are some game design books that are primarily for the computer game industry that, that sort of pay some service to board games. Um, uh, there's, there's Raf Koster's Theory of Fun, which is really good. Um, some things that are in that book even Raf doesn't agree with anymore, but uh, that's R-A-P-H, Raphael uh, Coster. Theory of Fun has uh, a nice approach to the idea of fun, which is uh, that fun exists somewhere between boredom and confusion. Um, he thinks like a video game designer, so he thinks primarily in one-player games, but in a game where you have no idea what's going on, you're not having fun because you don't understand how you impact the system and what it's doing for you. That's confusion. Um, boredom is where you know exactly what's going on, where everything you do produces exactly the expected result. And when you're in a situation in the game where you've seen everything or you feel like you've seen everything, you're off the other end of the scale and you're not having fun either. The fun is in the middle where you try stuff, you anticipate a result, and sometimes you're surprised. That's the fun that he's describing. Dave Howell talks about fun from a sort of different perspective. His grand theorem uh, of, uh, of games is a game is fun as long as a player feels like he has a reasonable chance to win. That's an important sentence with a couple of things that need to get broken down. The first one is feels like. It's nice if it's also true, but the player has to believe that he has a reasonable chance to win. And the second one, much harder one, is reasonable. It's not equal. You shouldn't feel like if you've fallen behind, you have the same chance to win as the person who's gotten ahead. That's not fun for either of you. You should have a small, but not too small, chance of winning. The guy in the lead should have a large, but not too large, chance of winning. And it's up to the designer to make that where it needs to be. I'll give you a worst-case scenario game. <coughs> we're going to have a horse race. The way we're going to race our horses is we're going to roll a six-sided die. We're both going to do it 50 times. After those 50 rolls, the person who has gone the farthest wins. After turn one, I roll a six and you roll a one. What are your chances of winning this game? With 49 turns to go, your chances are about one in three. That's how far behind you've already fallen. That's not a good game. And as we get deeper into the game with fewer turns to go and more difference between us, it's only going to get worse. Does it feel right with 49 turns to go that you're that far behind already? Of course not. So as soon as you learn the math of your game or play it enough times to realize it's a lost cause, 
you will stop having fun. You will fall off of Dave Howell's scale of feeling like you have a reasonable chance to win. Of course, we will make games that have nothing you know, to do with that game, but the expectation when you just look at those dice rolls is to say, oh, it'll all even out. No, it really won't. Um, the other two, uh, well, the, the last word in that sentence is also one that's worth qualifying, which is fun. Yeah. And uh, also, sort of certainly from, from my perspective, win is uh, right. a semantic Right, argument. right, right, right. There's no, there's no win. But, but in your games, uh, in, in role-playing games, win is, is little victories, sure. right? It's not defined as a giant beating of the game, but it's just every instance and every uh, uh, piece of the story has things you want and things you, you try to get. Absolutely. Question? Yeah. Uh, you've given some good examples of biased randomness, but you also give examples of fair randomness. Yeah. Um, the list I have for random uh, for fair randomness is the random setup in chess. Um, that's got both players with exactly the same arrangement of pieces, um, but but a uh, but a random setup. There's a there's a random starting layout in settlers, right? You can randomize the board in settlers, making it a different experience each time. But as soon as you pick who goes first, you're back on the biased thing. Um, and the the biggest category that I like to talk about is this or that rolls, which is get resource A or get resource B. So um, it's typical in a game to roll to see if you succeed. And if you succeed, you get what you wanted. And if you fail, you get nothing. Um, that's biased. But we have a principle in my game design theory class, whatever. That's called grit. And it's named after a mechanic in a game called Dwarven Dig, where every time you fail a roll, you get a piece of grit which is good for something else. You can use it as a plus one or turn it in for a magic spell or whatever. Um, grit is the booby prize. It's the thing you weren't going for, but you got anyway. And it's kind of a hybrid because you still didn't get the thing you wanted, so it's a little bit biased, but it's also a little more fair because you didn't get just nothing. Um, so in lots of games where we give you a, a, a secondary prize, or even an equivalent prize, just not what you asked for, we kind of refer to that mechanic as grit. Uh, what am I getting instead of the thing I wanted? I hope it's not nothing. One of the hybrid biased fair things that I have on my list, and you know, a lot, a lot of these principles wind up getting blurred when you do actual design, um, is the shuffle in poker. You would think that giving five random cards, and when I say poker, I mean five card draw, just to make everybody angry. Um, <laughs> if you, you think that if you give someone five random cards, it's going to favor one player over another. But the fact is that there's a, there's a slightly larger environment in which this distribution of cards takes place, and that environment permits folding. So you have an option. When you have a bad hand, you should throw it away. And because poker allows that option, it's not quite strictly biased. If it were strictly biased, it would just be you, everyone anties a dollar, you deal everyone five cards, and then the high hand wins. But there's betting, and there's folding, and there's commitment to your hand. That means that you can play the game strategically and not be quite so badly controlled by the biased shuffle. Um, in a game called Deadwood that I rewrote last year, um, there was kind of an option to jump on a crazy train, and you could not jump off. 
um, to succeed at a particular kind of, of this is a game about movie acting so to see, succeed at a particularly difficult movie you had to roll a six and it was detrimental to you to walk off the movie so you basically once you committed to it you had to sit there until you rolled a six while there, the rest of the game is going on around you I sit here until I roll a six probabilistically that's going to take six turns the fact is you could be stuck there forever and that's not good I'm setting someone back with a purely biased role and they've made a commitment based on odds that may not play out and then their fun just dwindles. Um, so in the remake, we changed a lot of rules, but one of the things we added was not grit, um, but an option where if you're on the roll, on the job, role has two meanings here, but when you're on, when you're on the roll, um, you can rehearse, which means you do not roll the die, but you get a plus one oh, nice. for, for all your subsequent rolls. So it's going to take me six turns to roll a six, or I can just sit here and accumulate counters until I'm guaranteed to succeed. And at any time you want, you can jump back on the crazy train and start rolling dice. So I only need a three now. Okay, now I'll start rolling. And they're mathematically equivalent, sort of, but there's other things in the game, like people are going to come and join you, and that's going to hurt you, so you might want to rush a little bit and start rolling earlier. That make those decisions fun, but no one ever feels trapped on that difficult roll anymore because we gave him that other option. Um, in preparing for teaching this course next spring, one of the things I sort of rediscovered was one of my fundamental game design principles uh, comes from when I was a, a kid. I grew up on games like Pitch. Pitch is a trick-taking game where you have to uh, bid, win the bid, to make the, the lead, and then you set the trump with the lead. How many of you didn't get that? All right. Um, basically, trick-taking game, yes? Like hearts? Okay. okay. Um, the only real bids in this game are two and three points. You can't, you're not allowed to bid one, and it's always it's really hard to make four. So you're either bidding two or three or you're passing. Um, the thing about the game is that there are really two approaches to it. You can play conservatively, never bid, take the occasional point, and only go up. <laughs> if you bid and don't make your bid, if you don't take three points when you say you're going to, then you go set three points instead. It doesn't matter if you took two, you lose three. So you can get on the, the, what I call crazy train, you can play aggressively and bid a lot with terrible hands, and you get more control of the game, and you have a much more volatile path, but it's not really better or worse than playing conservatively. That kind of approach to game design, where players who want to play conservatively can, players who want to play aggressively can, and neither one of those strategies is dominant, um, has kind of informed a lot of the games that I have made, and including like Deadwood, where you can roll the die to try to win the scene, or just sit there and rehearse and try to, to and, and you know wait for it to come around. Yeah. With the ticket to ride mechanic, where you have a four showing cards that you can choose from, or one random draw from the deck, um, with the benefit of a random draw being you can get a wild card, right? You could potentially get two wild cards. Right. Be another example of that phenomenon. Of uh, of uh, the, the 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 crazy train. Yeah, crazy train. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, um, the, yeah, there's five face-up cards. They're known entities. You can draw those cards, and it costs you two draws to pick up a wild card. Um, and that's, that's conservative. I really want a wild card. I'm going to spend two draws to pick it up. And then the slightly more crazy is to, to draw a, a random card, which is probably not what you need, but it also includes wild cards and could give you that, that extra, extra card. Um, Lords of Vegas is another game with, with a crazy train mechanic. In this... Um, in the original version of Lords of Vegas, in this game you're building casinos. And 
Casinos pay money and points only on a one in six random draw, one in five random draw. You turn over a card to start every turn, and the color of that card determines what colors of casino make money and points. If you have a brown casino and blue cards keep coming up, you never get money and you never get points. In the original version of this game, well, in, in the first version we tried to sell, when you owned an undeveloped property, you basically had two choices. You could leave it where it was, where it was worth nothing, or you could build a casino on it, pick a color, and hope that color came up. You had your options of crazy or nothing. When we redesigned the game, we realized that that was a big problem because people were forced to get on a crazy train. All you can choose is what color it is, which is kind of a non-choice. You look at the deck, you can see what colors are likely to come up, but it's still really random what comes up next. We decided that undeveloped properties paid $1. So if you haven't built anything there, it always pays $1. Now, on average, that's less than what a casino is going to pay you, but it's something. And if you want to wait, you can. You don't feel like an idiot not building anything. Players can wait four or five rounds in that game, accumulate parking lots, get a pretty high income for, that's guaranteed from that, and then decide when to step onto the, the chaos. You don't get any points from this. Eventually, you do still have to build casinos, but you can build your money base pretty well without developing. And that means that there really are two legitimate conservative and aggressive strategies in that game, and that makes it much more fun. Okay. Question, comment. Yes? Um, with regards to biased randomness, is there an argument that that is a useful tool for encouraging strategic choices? No. Um, I think what biased randomness does is, is what, what Howell explains is how it brings more players into the game. When, when you feel like it's possible for a crazy role to help you, 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 when you feel like you can catch up from far behind or when a, when a good player will get thwarted by, by bad randomness, that makes you more willing to play in the game. Um, but it makes the game less strategic and less fun for the strategy players. I, it's, it's strange because a lot of things I say are contradictory and I'm trying to figure out where, to, where they actually line up. Um, but, but I don't think that... Uh, well, you, uh, give me an example on top. I'm, I'm thinking of multiple strategies. Yeah. So if there is something... Maybe a group of maybe something in there where, uh, due to some random event, you now need. It is now beneficial for you to gain wood. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I agree, Claude. You've got various uh, trades, etc., which now you get extra points if you have wood and you can turn those into food. So now you have an alternate strategy that doesn't compete with other people's strategies because of the biased randomness of that particular choice. Well, I think it's still favoring one player then. Only uh, if, if it favors each player in their own strategy? Right. Well, so part of, part of the definition of functional randomness kind of talks about that in that, um, you know, if I, if I randomly give you wood and I randomly give someone else stone, that's fair if, from the farthest back perspective, there are different strategies that can take advantage of that. If you can kind of dodge and weave and deal with whatever comes up, that means you're taking a, a balanced approach to your strategy in the game. Um, poker is that is the example I use. Like, okay, I, mean, I gave you a bad hand, but you still have a, a move here. You throw it away and wait for another one. Um, Magic the Gathering and all trading card games to follow use that principle um, from the highest possible level, all cards are equal. Um, when you drill down a little bit, 
this card is good for this guy and bad for that guy. But from, from the farthest top reaches, it should be balanced, right? A, a, a plane should be just as good as a Lord of the Pit um, on balance. It's, the planes is much more useful to many more strategies. The Lord of the Pit is incredibly useful to one particular strategy. And you can give resources like that in the context of your game where, okay, I gave you a sheep and I gave him a wood and you don't need sheep because you really didn't prepare for it. Whose fault is that? <coughs> right? If you could have said, I will prepare so when I get a sheep I, I will be able to do something with it, that's your strategy preparing for the randomness that's going to come out. If, on the other hand, a sheep is just booby price and it's not worth anything, then that was biased and the other guy's better off. I'll, I'll add that uh, biased randomness in sort of in my house in role-playing games uh, is often, it takes the form of rule to be surprised. Uh, it, you're, you're just redirecting the narrative in, in a way that is unexpected. Uh, so a very elementary use of randomness in that case. And it's totally biased, but uh, very effective. I have a note here to talk about catch-up features. Who knows what a catch-up feature is? It's a special rule, an extra rule usually, although sometimes they're well hidden, that is designed either to help only those players who are behind or hurt only those players who are ahead. In the horse racing game, we could say that as long as you're uh, behind the lead horse, you get plus one to your rolls. That's a tailwind. And as long as you are the lead horse, you get minus one to your rolls. That's a headwind. Um, those kind of rules always feel bad to me. Uh, and when you add another rule to a game simply to make up for the fact that some people are splitting apart. If they're splitting apart purely based on biased randomness, there's probably something wrong with the randomness itself. If they're splitting apart because of strategy, it's probably okay. You want good players to get ahead because they're, because they're thinking well. Um, but usually when you have to add a catch-up feature, it's kind of a symptom of a deeper problem in your game that someone who is ahead on the racetrack um, have, through no real work of his own probably shouldn't be there. Um, the, uh, another, sort of the better fix instead of the, the, the headwind and tailwind rule in the horse racing game is you don't roll a die to move. You make a decision to move forward and possibly exhaust yourself or to move slowly and save up energy. So someone's position on the track is not entirely his game state. He might have saved up some energy that he can use later on to catch up. And obviously, you know, if you make this too mathematical, then everyone will all finish at the same time. But you get the basic idea that um, one of the symptoms of a, of a catch-up feature is that it's too easy to see who's in the league. Um, if it's not that easy to tell, because someone might have more momentum, more energy, more potential uh, for, the, for the late game, just because they're not ahead on the scoring track, they may still be winning the game, then it's harder to sort of feel like you're behind just by looking at the scoring track. So uh, multiple victory conditions are a way to mask that? Um, not multiple victory conditions, although that's a way to do it. I guess what I mean is more, more ways to conceal your potential. Um, a horse racing game where we can play as many cards as we want on our turn, um, I play a few and get a little bit ahead. You play a lot to get very far ahead. What's our game state? You're farther ahead, but I have more cards left in my hand. So weigh that together, and who's really winning? It may still be kind of a toss-up. Mm -hmm. Okay, questions? 
how does that fit um, with games where you where you have limits on how many moves you can make by the end of the game, like number of a certain <coughs> token in a Catan game? Or, so you, the player who's ahead, um, there may not be a catch-up feature in this game, but the player who's ahead um, uses up all those first, but they still have the same maximum potential as another player. I I don't know. I feel like I feel like limited components are. Um, essentially a headwind, uh, but I'm not sure. It depends. I don't. I don't remember that particular part of Settlers very well. Um, but if a if a piece is limited in a box, it's often because we can only make so many pieces, and it's integrated into the game mechanics because there's no other. You know, you, there's only so many pieces. Um, I don't know that it's a that it's useful in a in a sense that it doesn't help anyone else that the, that the resource pool is exhausted. It doesn't help anyone that the bank is out of money. Um, I think it is just mostly based on finite components in the box. Carcassonne well, seems to Vegas, make... For yeah, example, yeah. Eventually you run out of dice. Right. If you're doing really well. Right. Oh yeah, but that's, that's, a, that's a personal yeah. stock of components, right? I thought maybe yeah. like when the bank runs out, it doesn't really help yeah, no, anyone. Yeah, no, I think the personal stock. Yeah, yeah, so the personal stock in Lords of Vegas definitely is a hindrance on someone who's made too much advance. Uh -huh. um, in Lords of Vegas, you have, um, you have dice that you use to mark the properties that you own. They don't usually get rolled, but the face that is up tells you how much strength you have in that particular location. And you have 12 of them. So if you build a 13th property, you no longer can populate it unless you pull a die off the board from somewhere else. It does keep someone who's very far ahead from ballooning even further. But it's also a limitation of the pieces in the box. You know, and uh, in the, the, the history on that specific rule was still based on we can only put a finite number of dice in the box. And you kind of look at it and go, oh, we just pull from somewhere else. Oh, and by the way, that also keeps someone from getting too far ahead. It's interesting, I think, about uh, Pandemic, where I, I guess you'd call it a headwind that uh, when you run out of blocks of a particular color, that's a loss condition for the game. That's more like a timer. Yeah, it's a pacing mechanism, yeah, too. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if this would actually qualify as writing this, but Age of Steam has a very interesting pacing catch-up mechanic. And I'm wondering if they're... For those of us who haven't played it, um, could you describe it? You have to take stock to require to gather resources to build track to earn income. You're paying interest on the loans that you're using each time. And there's a I believe that the resources themselves are randomly generated, so you're getting you're getting more rope to hang yourself. Um, it, if you have not played it, then there's probably no valid, uh, no useful discussion on that particular game. But uh, it, it, it's just got a very interesting mechanic in that you're definitely pushing your luck because you're going, you're filling up your credit card to try to uh, pay your way forward. Right. Right. And is there a is there a conservative and an aggressive strategy in dealing with that system? Uh, the conservative is to not take too many loans, mm -hmm. but you start the game your initial cash is loans. Mm. So, so 
Sorry. That sounds good. Uh, yeah. So as a international relations major, I always liked half the leader mechanics to a certain degree because there's an international relations concept called balancing. And whatever state pulls ahead, particularly if they're aggressive about it, there's a tendency for everyone to go against them. Right. Although there's also a bandwagon strategy of just join up with a big guy. Um, so attack the leader can be a headwind to it. Right. Actually, attack the leader is often inserted as a headwind. It's usually an assumption that the game is self-correcting because people can direct their damage to a particular player. Um, I feel like that makes games too political, and so I like to have a tiny bit of it, but it's always indirect. It's not really like, I just attack you. Um, one, of the, one of the problems with using attack the leader as a balancing mechanic is that um, you have to be careful not to give someone a choice between advancing his own position and attacking the leader because then he's basically sacrificing himself to keep the game going. He needs to have that attack as a free option um, or as part of something that he's also doing to help himself. That's how something like Ticket to Ride gets away with Attack the Leader by saying, well, yes, I know I just built what is obviously a, a, a route that you need, but I also need it. I'm helping myself while I hurt you. And that, that's, that's a good way, I think, to, to incorporate that. If you strictly have to hurt yourself to hurt somebody else, uh, you know, take a, an action or take a whole turn to, to bring down the guy who's about to win, then you're not helping yourself either. You just feel like a chump. Um, now, I have that game. It's called Kill Dr. Lucky, but um, in a sense, sort of the, the control of the failure cards is the whole game, and so maybe that's okay in that. But there are other times where you're clearly not helping yourself uh, in service to, to, to hurting a leader. Yeah. Can you talk about some of your uh, favorite Fair randomness examples from role from tabletop role playing games. Fair randomness. Yeah. I'm not sure that fair randomness gets a lot of uh, gets a lot of play in uh, role playing games. Okay. Um, but I, I mentioned earlier that uh, randomness often is the equivalent of role to be surprised. That that there's an ongoing narrative and there's a decision point, a moment of crisis, of uncertainty that you're resolving, um, and that resolution can be biased. Um, many games have you know essentially a tactical mini game component to them. Dungeons and Dragons, you know, you know you, you've got a battle mat and you, you know, you're positioning and attacks of opportunity and, and so forth. Uh, but I don't know that there's a lot of fair randomness involved in that. Yeah. Cooperative games have an entirely different template than, than strategy games and than competitive games. Yeah, and I definitely want to talk about that. Yeah. Um, when I posed the horse race question to my friend Ellen who works in the computer game industry, the question was after turn one with, with only five steps between you, how likely should you be to win? As the, as the person who rolled the one, her answer was, oh, 60 to 80%. <laughs> and at first I thought that was a terrible answer. That's not mathematically possible. That would mean the other guy would have even more and your chances would add up to 200. But she writes computer games and so she knows games from the perspective of a single player. That single player should feel like he's that likely to win, even if he's fallen behind. If you're playing Mario Kart and you're driving behind, that's fine because the game is just gonna let you win because it's all about you. Everyone else isn't real. So her perspective really was valuable. And when I thought about it even more, I got to thinking that she might be right in board games too. That there are a lot of party games like Apples to Apples where everyone overinflates their odds of winning just because Everyone always overinflates their odds of winning. If you, t you polled everyone in the game what their odds of winning the game are, it would add up to hundreds of percents. And that's probably good. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a 
fantasy, but it's probably good. What you don't want is everyone in your game underestimating their chances of winning, right? Because everyone's checking out left and right. They're just like, okay, I, obviously this game is over. Um, you've probably played Euro games where you feel that way after turn one. Oh, I made a mistake in turn one, and there's 90 minutes to go. <laughs> Whoop-de-doo. Power Grid actually has it in the rules. It says, the first time you play this, stop in the middle and start over again. <laughs> okay, amen, brother. <laughs> Here's the question. Uh, so, kind of to speak to your example of Mario character, that's just something I can in my mind. When you're playing in multiplayer, so you're playing more competitive environment, the game compensates by giving the person in the front like crappy items and the people in the back really good stuff. So, is that yep. another example? That's a headwind. That's exactly what that is. Headwinds and, and, and the rubber banding is what they call it. It's a way to artificially constrain the distance between the leader and the follower. And you, digitally, it's easy to do. It's very well hidden, right? And everyone grouses about it, but the yeah, game's not fun if you don't. It takes the crap out of it. Yeah. But there's a lot of... Games like Mario Kart and Pinball are magical in this way that everyone feels like they have complete control. So the, 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 the players who um, uh, care that it's their skill that won them the game will believe that it was, even though they are full of incredibly random events, right? Pinball players who want to think that they're really awesome at pinball think that, that it doesn't matter if the ball hasn't hit the flippers in five minutes, it was still their decision to where it went. And, uh, and it's just not true, it's, it's random. And, and Mario Kart, same way, all of the things, that, the minute mistakes that you can make with a controller add up to a random event, even though you want to believe that if you were good enough at it, you'd ace it every time. Quick example on the attempts at fair randomness in RPGs. I don't know how well this actually works out, but Mouse Garden has something where you gain skills by having a certain number of successes and a certain number of failures. Uh, so that's a great element. Oh, and the, um, that's true. And uh, games like Apocalypse World uh, reward failure as well. You're going you're gonna to succeed, or you're going to you're going to make one choice, or you're going to gain XP. Uh, someone's going to agree with you, or you're going to get XP, uh, things like that as well. Remember rolling up characters? Yeah. You roll three dice, and that's your stats for life? Good times. Why would you do that? <laughs> you would do that because your hobby grows out of wargaming, where all conflict and all resolution is based on random events, based on the roll of the dice. And eventually you will learn that Everyone will cheat that system until they're all 18s unless you come up with some other way to distribute fairly points that describe your character. It's true. Can we talk about cooperative games? Yeah. Uh, I'm very interested in how uh, the concepts and volatility you're talking about apply to games like Pandemic. Yeah. Shadows over Camelot. Um, well, I think of one-player games and cooperative games as kind of being in the same category um, in that you're playing against the system. So um, there's a much broader range of results that you can deliver when it's the player against the, the machine. Um, I kind of feel like my boundaries are 15% and 85%. That is in chances to win. So when I'm playing a, uh, any kind of platformer or something and, and I can go through every level without blinking, it's too easy. And when I have to try a level more than five times before I get through it, it's too hard. And those happen to be, you know, a roll of a one and a roll of a six on a d6. Maybe I'm just used to that. Um, but you can deliver much more uh, uh, variance in odds to win or succeed at a particular task when you're just dealing with one player. 
there isn't another opponent who's going to get the same role and do better. Yeah, good deal. Um, and and in a one-player game like a slot machine, volatility is king. Volatility is how you make those games fun. Because I could give you a slot machine that was 99.9% .9 payback with zero volatility and you would just lose a penny every time you bet. That would be no fun at all. But a slot machine with 80% payback and a huge volatility is still fun because every now and then you hit a jackpot. Um, although I have it on good authority that making an 80% slot machine still fun is very, very hard. <laughs> yeah. I have a question about um, tabletop RPGs and the thing you said earlier about fun exists between uh, boredom and confusion. Um, how would you find that balance in terms of tabletop RPGs? So we're System, setting, balance, therein. Sure, and we're really, and, and so I think there's two things going on there. We're really kind of talking about flow, right? It, yeah. with, with tabletop RPGs, you uh, you want uh, you, you, you want those elements to sort of mesh in a way that's going to keep you engaged, but not frustrate you, right? Uh, and it's a moving target because people process information differently. I think it, in some ways it's an information design challenge. Uh, and you, you that people come to role playing for very different reasons, uh, and you can look at you can look at a game like Apocalypse World, uh, and there are expectations about social engagement that are completely different from the expectations for some guys that are going to play Pathfinder. There's no value judgment there, but the things that they're looking for in that game, uh, in terms of the, the flow experience, where those boundaries are between really frustrating and ridiculously easy, are, are quite different. So I think part of the, the design challenge is both understanding who you're orienting your game for and then putting in, uh, uh, putting in orientation for people who want your experience but aren't comfortable with your experience. Right. Does that make sense? Okay. I think that there's a broad range of expectations in board gaming too. It's impossible to satisfy all of them. Um, Candyland is a great game if you're three. And it really is. Um, and it's a great game for parents, too. And it had, turns out to be a great game for game designers. Um, when I was playing Candyland with my daughter, I, I learned what her expectations of the game were by just watching her play. And when she got stuck in the molasses swamp, or when I got stuck in the molasses swamp, she would walk backwards to help me out. You know, for her, it was a role-playing game, and that was what she expected out of it. That's great. Right? If I was your sort of run-of-the-mill game designer, I would just say, that's not a game, it's stupid, you can't play it. But, but there's so much there, and there's so much that she wanted to get out of it, that it's teaching me what I should put in, what players should be expecting and wanting out of the games that they play. And it's, it's more story. You know, it's not about mechanics. Huge category of gamers do not really want to be challenged. They enjoy making decisions now and then, but they don't want to get stuck. So don't throw up these hard moves every round. Yeah. Um, in the tabletop RPG realm, what about things like the old school wandering, thinking, uh, wandering monster tables, that kind of thing? I don't know if that's a balance or fair, because it's uh, group versus system. So I don't know if 
Right. You encounter a dragon or you encounter a goblin. Which one of if it, it's, that is a fair Well, it's fair in a in a in a role playing setting because it's a, because it's one party encountering it. It's biased if it was a tournament where one player had one group had to fight a dragon and the other group had to on the same table fight the the goblin. Well, and there's and there's a whole uh, I mean there's a whole rat's nest there as well since there's there's essentially human judgment that's that's part of that equation. Right. Well, then first I kill the dragon, and then I set the rat's nest on fire. Okay. All right. Yeah. Ten experience points. Move on. Yes. Oh. But uh, you know, your 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 game master is going to going to in the in the very traditional mode is going to make some assessment and be like, ah, that's just I rolled an eight, but that's too hard for these guys. I'm going I'm gonna I'm gonna fudge this to make it actually engaging and fun. I'm finding that sweet spot. So I actually rolled a seven. That's why you have a game master shield, right? I'm personally thinking of the OSR philosophy, where it's very much that's fixed. You encounter a dragon, well, you better run away. So it's total transparency. Yeah. Yeah. Oh well. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> transparency works for some people, but not me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, then again, this all seems to come back in the role-playing realm to social expectations, right? So you're playing an OSR game, you're going to go super hardcore, everything's out on the table, and, uh, and that's a delightful occurrence. And I've totally played that way. You know, we, the, you know the, the, guy, the, the dungeon master rolls the dice and is like, wow, you guys see something that you cannot handle. What do you do? And we die miserably and run away screaming, and, and it's great because that's, that's what we paid the ticket for. So what is the right amount of volatility, do you feel like, in a tabletop game? <laughs> you just you gave a lecture and all the questions are about this stuff that, I don't, I don't know. I can, I can read the rack. What do you think is the right amount of volatility in a it, tabletop game? It depends game? on the players, right? <laughs> yeah. it, it depends on the player group. And, and game is such a, a tired, worn out, overstretched, butter spread on too much bread word that it refers to everything from sports to gambling to what we do, and there isn't a right amount in any of it. And even within the you know, tabletop board gaming category, there are players who want to be entertained and not to sit there and think, and players who are entertained exclusively by thinking too hard. So oh, there isn't a right amount. Yeah, I asked this question from the perspective of, you know, where do you balance the, the player decision role-play aspect sure. versus what randomly happens to them? Well, it's, uh, I, I think that's a design question based on an understanding of who your audience is. And I'm not designing games for Pathfinder players necessarily. So the people that I know are really going to resonate with the things that I like and that the people I play with like, they want a certain amount of that. And I, I kind of know where that is. And when I make a game that has too much or too little of that, nobody plays it, you know? Uh, so the sweet spot for me is uh, it, it's, uh, it's a pretty low amount, right? Uh, they're, they're, whenever an uncertainty arises in the game, it's, it's going to be something that you're going to quickly resolve to push it in a particular direction and move on. Aren't random encounter tables and random loot tables just sort of a way to save the GM from having to do a whole lot of grunt work? Sometimes. Seems like, it seems like that's what they're there for, and I haven't played game since I was playing D&D back when it was new and so I don't know but that my that's my experience of it is that I, I want to write a basic adventure but I don't want to hit every little detail so I'll put a random encounter in these rooms and roll up the treasure if it's if they get there and if they don't get there I didn't waste the work 
There's, uh, I mean, there are whole games that are predicated on, on random tables, and Japanese games are super into that, and there's a concept called roller choose, which is really common in Japanese tabletop role-playing games, where the expectation is that you're going to create some random element that's prompted by the game's rules, and if you don't like it, you're going to choose something else on the list, uh, which I think is a really cool concept. Oh, sure, uh, like Ryutama or uh, Shinobigami, uh, Maid does that, so there's bunches of them. Uh, what do you think about randomness as it enhances the theme of a the game, If it, whether or not it makes sense with the mechanics, how do you balance that? If you say, well, I want to include randomness for this, even though whatever scenario I'm emulating wouldn't include it, or if it would include some randomness, but you don't know that you want as much as it would be in the game, so how do you find the balance there? I like to run my game theme by my playtest group as early as possible and try to get a sense for what they expect. Uh, do they expect to, expect to be surprised and thwarted and, and, uh, by random events, or is this an environment where they expect to have a lot of control? So, you know, besides just your playtest group, what is your, what is your game promising? I have a game that it's in development right now called Yum Yum Superfish Delicious, and it's got this, you know, glorious anime cover. But, um, but it's a fairly dry game about being a, a French chef, and there's not a lot of random events in it. You know, the board is randomized to begin with, but then everyone picks and chooses ingredients and recipes off of it. And um, the best feedback that I got this weekend, which of course was negative, was <laughs> there isn't enough funny and fun in this game mechanic yet. We should be screwing with each other more because of the promise of that cover. Um, so what are you promising? That's that's where you need to look to figure out what you need to deliver. That's a, that's a great note. Oh, so what about Candyland? Same kind of thing, right? There's a promise there when you look at the board. Yeah, this game's for kids. <laughs> um, and that means kids can play it. That means kids have a, a, can have just as much fun. You know, They want to be surprised. They certainly don't want to be put on the spot. What color would you like to draw, sweetheart? Uh, I don't know. Just draw me a card, right? Um, so if you opened up Candyland and it was Settlers of Catan, you would be disappointed. Because I already have Settlers of Catan. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I sometimes find the theme can conflict a little bit of politics in the game. I played uh, Survivor recently, where you have a land and you go to that because of waste of it. I thought that physical part really, I enjoyed it. But also you control the monsters that are killing the players. And some of that was fun, but some of that really felt uh, dickish. Uh, so oh, we're trying to survive, but it's not like survive and murder. Survive and murder, yeah. Well, I mean, is that, is that a Survivor-branded game? Um, that was Survive Escape from Atlantis. Yeah, Survivor, oh, Survive Survivor Escape from Atlantis. Escape from yeah, Atlantis. Stronghold yeah, okay. games. Yeah, yeah. sorry, not uh, television show. Okay, okay. Oh, yeah, it's totally dickish. Uh, and uh, it, it's agonizing if you're playing with people you care about when you sink their boat with your dragon. But that's agonizing means fun, right? Oh yeah. yeah. Um, I've once heard a, a designer theorize that a lot of the fun or entertainment in games comes from the element of surprise. Yeah. Um, do you feel that the including randomness in games is sort of what is the core of that? There's two really good places to get surprise. One of them is randomness, and I think that's the easier one. And the other one is player behavior. Um, Rogue Rally is a hilarious game. 
Um, and yeah, there's random distributions of cards that make your hand and tell you what you can do, but most of the really chaotic things that happen in that game is when two dogs are running for the same bone. And my robot pushes yours onto a conveyor belt you weren't expecting to go on, and your program might winds up running you into a pit, and that's hilarious. Um, it's unexpected, but it's an unexpected result of the combination of all of us just trying to do what we're trying to do. Totally, and that, uh, I think in, in well-designed role-playing games, you see the same thing, that uh, there are prompts, character-related prompts, that are going to make uh, individual characters bounce off each other. And the game I would point to you as a really elegant example of that is Apocalypse World, or any of the hacks of Apocalypse World. Uh, it does that really well. There's randomness, but randomness is always consequential. Uh, you, you're, you may succeed at what you want to do, but the cost is often very high. And that, and that cost is... Uh, a, a fictional cost that's going to escalate and snowball into other interesting situations uh, that, rather than straight up failures. This is why fun, as, a, as, as distinct from challenge, fun comes from player interactions in, in every form. Whether we're just bidding for the same route um, in Ticket to Ride or we're running our robots into each other, um, funny can only come off of a card once and then you've heard that joke and Unless you're the kind of person who thinks things are funnier, the more you hear them, um, you you know you you did it. You got your trick out of that, and now the game had better continue to be funny without that joke being new. Uh, but with Robo Rally, as as an example that I hope a lot of people have played, um, that that interaction never gets stale. We probably have time for one more question. Can you just really quickly tell the publisher of Apocalypse World? Uh, sure, it's Lumpley Games. Okay, thank you. So. Um, as board game designers, how do you start making that shift from bias randomness into more fair randomness to try and sort of achieve? I guess it seems like it ends up being like a higher level of quality in a lot of cases. How do you go about that? I think the first thing you need to do is be able to identify it. Is this a, is this a mechanic that is uh, arbitrarily giving a lot of value to one player and not another? Um, and what can you do to compensate for it? Can you remove it, or you can give the other player something else, or you can create an environment in which the get-nothing result really gets you something else that might have been good if you had been ready for it. Um, maybe there's a horse racing game where not moving turns out to be really good, um, but I doubt it. Um, <laughs> that's, that's, not, that's not fulfilling the promise on the box. You might have some theme issues. Right. There. <laughs> Done as a chariot race, and I can't remember the name of it right now. Um, but it's also like a space racing game where you have fuel cards. So the idea is to take optimized routes, but you can't pass through other players. So being able to like not move much and block up away forces people to like spend right. their big fuel cards to go around you. That's a kind of nice feature. I like that game a lot. <laughs> Well, that's it. Thank you all very much for coming. Before I let you go, I'm going to plug my Kickstarter. I have Unexploded Cow on Kickstarter right now, and it's our way of raising money to restart cheap-ass games. Please go and click on that. Tell all your friends. Thanks very much. Thank you.